Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing good today, guys? Hey. Hey, doing good. How about you? Uh, I am I'm great. I'm on a, a first day of a week off work. I'm just going to chill out, watch movies, play video games, recalibrate. So I'm, a, I'm in a fantastic mood. Um. I'm hoping we can dub this the Tooth Extraction Edition because tomorrow morning I'm going under the knife. Oh, good luck to you. Thank you. Never had a cavity in my life. And uh, first experience with dental surgery is a full extraction. So uh, not looking forward to it. Apparently, I've got loose structure of a tooth with just a cave inside. So it's time to go. Oh, mm. right. Okay. <laughs> well, we, we, wish, we wish Chris best of luck with his dentist. I'm sure he's a friend of the podcast. So he'll go easy on him. <laughs> okay. Um, so we're, we're going to crack straight in with uh, the, the first film that we watched for this segment, um, which is called Wild Strawberries. You're probably familiar. It is a Ingmar Bergman film from 1957. This is going to be an interesting discussion. Uh, me and the guys are talking about this before we started recording. Uh, we're going to be coming at you with three very different perspectives. Uh, I got into Bergman in the last year and I got super into Bergman to the point where I, I genuinely think he's probably the greatest director to ever have lived. Um, Chris had seen a lot of Bergman films, but it's been a long time. So this is kind of like him revisiting Bergman. Mm-hmm. And then Zach is a Bergman virgin, a virgin, if you will. <laughs> um, this is his first Bergman film. And I, I think it's a pretty interesting one to start with. So I, I'm actually going to start with Zach. I, I want to get your thoughts, you know, considering this is your first Bergman. I, I want to know what you thought. Well, I was hoping you guys would just talk so I could just like take whatever you say and then put it in my analysis. Um, but mine's <laughs> going to be pretty superficial um, because his first one, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's like I told you, Adam, before we got started. I think the part that kind of distracted me, because the whole time I was trying to figure out if it was purposefully or accidentally, seemed like a um, a readaption of um, A Christmas Carol. Um, when you have like the... Cause I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, and I think uh, probably too much time like trying to find little connections for it but overall it's it i like how simple it was um i like how accessible it was versus what we had talked about how unaccessible i kind of always assumed bergman would be uh so i I love the way the film looks i I like anything that's four three black and white i think it was four three it might be one three three but uh one or the other um i like the way it looks i love the cinematography i like the music i thought the acting was phenomenal but any deeper analysis, I probably need to watch it again. But I do think it's a movie from even, you know, I feel like this is a movie you would look at differently depending on your age as well. The closer you are to having those years of regret, the more you're going to identify with the main character, which I think is always an interesting way to have a movie where you have all these people that you can identify with. And as you get older, you identify with different ones. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that it, you felt it was accessible. You know, I think depending on uh, where people are in their journey is just seeing a lot of foreign films or, or maybe kind of classic cinema. Uh, Bergman does feel pretty inaccessible. I've heard that a lot. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's just it's like dialogue heavy, right, which not everybody kind of enjoys. Like his films aren't not a lot of special effects happening on Swedish government funded uh, projects in the 50s. Um, right. So you have to win on story and dialogue. Uh, so anyways, I'm, I'm really glad to hear it's accessible. Uh, for, for someone coming in the first time. Uh, and, and I feel like, you know, the, for me, this conversation starts with kind of, if you think about uh, the idea of reflecting back on a life, 
I love the fact that the title character is Victor uh, Sjöström, and I'm not Swedish, so apologies for that pronunciation. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good pronunciation, to be fair. <laughs> uh, but have you all seen The Phantom Carriage? Yes. I, I haven't. I was obviously going to bring up the fact that this is the director of The Phantom Carriage, and I was actually I was thinking of watching it today, and I just leaned with something else instead, but I, I do need to watch it. What, what I one? Didn't I didn't know that was the same person. That's awesome, actually. Sorry? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did not know that was there was a connection there. I like that. Yeah, I think it's kind of Bergman's way of even even subtly like giving a nod to some of the greats that came before him. You know, this this movie certainly it's it's weird because it wasn't at the tail end of his career as much as some of his other stuff, but it it was kind of right when he was really you know prime of his career. But uh, yeah, just the theme of reflecting back. I like that. I like that he started there. Uh, the and this wasn't this even wasn't uh, Shostrom's first time acting in a Bergman film. I don't know if you've seen To Joy. It's like an earlier one. It's much more of a classic Hollywood-style Bergman film. And Shostrom basically plays a conductor in an orchestra that the two main characters are part of. Um, that was where I'd first seen him act. So when I saw him then in the, you know, when I was reading up about this before I watched it, I thought, oh, great, he was really good in To Joy. I'm glad to see that he can, that it wasn't just like a one-off. I assumed his role in To Joy was kind of like a cameo. So obviously that wasn't the case. And, and he proved himself to be a pretty damn great actor by... Yeah. But by going by this film, anyway. Yeah, definitely. I'm just trying to remember. There's that that the joy is not the one where it's all about like uh, people coming back from uh, nautical sort of. No, uh, to joy. It's it's basically takes its title from Ode to Joy, um, the the classical yeah, yeah, piece. Yeah. It's basically yeah. about uh, two two violinists in an orchestra who fall in love, and it's just kind of about their their sort of marriage. Um, it's felt like it's it's a it's a great little film. I'd recommend, it. especially the the scenes. Um, you know, the scenes actually take place during like the orchestra and, and the practices and stuff like that. They're really really well filmed. It's it's like I said, it's an early Bergman film. I'm pretty sure it's even included in the Eclipse early Bergman box set, and then obviously it's included in the Bergman set as well. But um, I, I caught that one a couple of months ago, and I thought it was really good. It's again, it's it's very different to later Bergman, which I'll, I'll sort of touch on briefly in terms of how that relates to this film uh, at some point. But um, it's still it's still a really good film. It's uh, definitely definitely recommend it. That's awesome. Yeah, the other the other thing I think um, that that comes to mind just as we're as we're talking about Bergman's early career is just 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 kind of reflect back on sort of what I have seen from him, and this I think it happens here as well is. You know, you you can really sense that he's a product of the stage first. Like he he really values the stage and the theater. Um, we actually uh, an old business uh, I was in a while back. We had a client from Sweden, and I I beat myself up because I went to Stockholm and I did not get to take a train to Malmo where he had a theater that he basically built up, and it's kind of like Bergman's theater. Uh, it was a couple hour train ride, but I just couldn't fit it into the schedule. And I hope I get a chance to go back uh, just out of respect for him, but. Um, yeah, I think, you know, his his characters are always so theatrical, and I feel like they, um, I mean, not only are he, is he pulling actors from the theater, but it just feels like this is something that could easily be transferred over there. Um, and, and I think there's, it was, this was on display very much uh, in, in Wild Strawberries as well. Yeah, I think you can say that a lot of his films, um, you know, even just off the top of my head, like films like um, Persona, um, mm -hmm. Hour of the Wolf, um, yeah. Nirvana, those kind of more low-key films that only sort of really take place in a handful of locations. Basically, all of his Faroe Island films, all the ones he filmed on Faroe Island, pretty much all of those could be stage plays because they pretty much only take place in like one or two locations, usually mm -hmm. at, at like this kind of like a beach cottage. Um, 
so I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I suppose to talk about the sort of connection between the older Bergman and the and the newer Bergman, this sort of ties into Zach's um, sort of um, statement of being around accessibility. Um, I found that this film, like this was my first time watching this, I'd seen lots of newer, Ber- well, I say newer Bergman, like 60s, 70s Bergman, and kind of like a handful of the sort of 50s Bergman. And I find that this film is kind of like the perfect mix of the two. It really stands as a, you know, stands on the, the threshold between the more classically inclined Bergman, which you can see in, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the cinematography in this film, especially like the scenes in the car and stuff, it kind of just looks like a classic Hollywood film. But then obviously the more dreamier aspects and the more metaphysical elements really tie into what he did a lot in the, in the sixties, um, you know, with the likes of like persona or, or the faith trilogy, you know, th- those kind of films. So I, I, th- I find with this film, it's a really great entry point into the, into Bergman because, even though you're getting those metaphysical and I suppose intellectual themes, if you will, you're getting them at a really accessible level. And I think even though a lot of his films are, like we said, dialogue driven and, you know, have maybe metaphysical themes, I still think this, if you get, if you like this kind of film, you'll like his later films as well. Even if they are a bit more depressing. Well, Mm -hmm. I think one thing I liked is, I think this is a problem with a lot of filmmakers um, is taking themes and intellectual th- uh, proper uh, aspects and not talking down to your audience about them. I, I think that's always tough for certain ones, Von Trier, um, to not, <laughs> to have, to be obviously be an intelligent person, but don't give your audience the same benefit of the doubt that they can also keep up with it. And I did enjoy that, that about Bergman. I didn't feel talked down to. I felt like he trusts me to get the themes and understand them and not be overly on the nose about them to where they kind of lose all punch they could have. You mean like in images, how the main character literally does a <laughs> jigsaw puzzle the whole way through the fucking film? Oh, we had to get an images stab in there. Somewhere. I haven't, I haven't, I, I've been very good about images. I haven't talked smack about it in any episode so far. Uh, well, and you know, just to go on images, you know, that's kind of one where you, kind of expect Altman to give you, you know, he's usually at least decent at not talking down to his audience, but I will agree with you that that one was definitely a misfire. <laughs> yeah. Like even like three women. Sorry. Sorry, Chris. No, 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 no. Three women. He is, is a fantastic example of where he, he is not condescending, right? Yeah. Is that what you're going to say? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like he doesn't, he, he probably does the opposite. He doesn't really give us enough to go on in, in three women, um, which is obviously heavily influenced by persona uh, to tie it back to Bergman. Um, yeah, it, it was it was kind of weird. I I I don't want to get caught up in talking about images, but yeah, I was super disappointed <laughs> in images after watching Three Women because I assumed he wouldn't talk down to us. Yeah, um, uh, just the, what I was going to say is that I think images we can probably blame on the writer. Uh, I can't remember her name, but she was one of the main actresses in the movie, uh, and uh, well, let's just say he gave her a lot of creative control. But uh, you know, there was two questions I had for y'all about Wild Strawberries, and so maybe I would just kind of think of maybe one at a time, but. The, the first one is why strawberries? So I have some, some thoughts on that, but like, I don't know if y'all think that's an interesting question to discuss, but like kind of why did he choose strawberries as an image? I don't have a clue. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I have no idea. I just assumed it was like, it, it came from some sort of Swedish and this was like the literal translation of it, but it's really like a Swedish saying or something. 
Um, yeah, I, you know, I guess, Zach, anything else? Otherwise, like, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I can just jump in with, with why I, I don't have to lead anybody, I guess. <laughs> no, no, you're good. Uh, I, I haven't given a lot of thought. I was actually, right before we started, I was kind of thinking what, you know, the actual, like, title and its meaning and stuff. But I'm afraid to really go too far into it because it, I'm afraid it's just going to end up being the, the curtains are blue. They don't mean anything or they don't mean as deep as I want to get into it or anything like that. But I'd love to hear what you have to say, Chris, because it'll probably be better than what I could come up with. Well, yeah, and I certainly don't know either, but here we go. I'm just going to dive in and, and uh, the uh, the millions of viewers, apologies here if it's not, or listeners, uh, apologies if it's not right. But there is, so uh, my business partner before, before this company I was at was Norwegian, and we actually got to go back to his homeland. And the strawberries in Norway are unbelievable. Like it's nothing like we've ever had in the U.S. They're a little smaller, but it's like eating candy. Like it's it's like unbelievable sweet, and they're very proud of the strawberries. And since Norway is so close to Sweden, I'm going to, uh, uh, you know, I guess assimilate cultures here a little bit. So I hope that's not wrong. But um, they're they're just you know I think strawberries are always thought of as sweet, but they're just exceptionally sweet and light. Uh, and, and the idea that these, these kind of wild strawberries are growing, um, for me, I, you know, I, I just felt like they, there are these beautiful things that come out of the ground. There's really, they're not controlled. It's like life kind of just happens. And, and then you have this beautiful patch of strawberries. Um, and you know, they don't need a lot of care. They kind of grow like weeds in certain areas. And, and I, I thought that, you know, as, as Bergman was reflecting, I have a strong hunch that, Strawberries were probably part of his memories from from early parts of life, um, and and he it's just one of those things. It's like a uh, what's the Citizen Kane? Uh, sorry, the name's escaping me. The the whole point of Citizen Kane. Rosebud. Yeah, it's just like one of these childhood memories that sticks with him, and he associates associates it with a time in his life when he was kind of like innocent, young, and like maybe a little bit closer to who he wanted to be as he got closer to death, and uh, and and that's that's my guess. Well, kind of like the idea that y- you lose the simplicity of what life can be, the innocence of it, because he's, you know, so focused on his career and everything he's lost that something like that just kind of brings it back to that. Yeah, it's like a hook or like a smell or like something that just like immediately puts you back in that place before the world kind of corrupted you, you know? Yeah, I like that. I like we'll go, that. We'll, we'll I go with that. I think we'll go with that. Chris uh, has obviously um, been doing a seance and was talking to Ingmar earlier today to get that answer, <laughs> but... um. We'll, we'll friend, of the pod- that, I think. friend of the podcasting, Mark Bergman. He listens in every week from beyond the grave. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, I would love if we could ever get um, uh, Werner Herzog in here just to rant on something. That's um, going to be my ultimate goal for this podcast. That man's voice. I could just listen to it all day. <laughs> I don't think I don't um, think we'd end up saying anything. We'd just be like, just keep talking, Werner. You, you just keep yeah, talking. Yeah, rant on the shoe for 20 minutes. Um <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so that was one of the questions. And the, and the other question was, I guess, maybe, you know, Zach, apologies. I know this is your first one here. Um, let's see if there's a way I can generalize this. Uh, you know, Bergman is, is known for, uh, this, this kind of real heady sort of like faith driven, uh, material. Right. And I mean, he certainly covers a lot of family dynamics as well. And it's not only faith, but I think faith is kind of tied into a lot of his more, more, more famous work. Mm-hmm. So, um, without knowing y'all's faith backgrounds, I'm just curious, like, uh, if, you know what, is Wild Strawberries even the best one to talk about faith with? It might not be, because it, it doesn't, it's really not as prominent a theme here, right? No, I don't think it's prominent at all. A lot of his 60s work, definitely. Well, I suppose even, I can't remember if, 
But the Seventh Seal was definitely after this. I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. if the Virgin Spring was after. I think the Virgin Spring is probably the mo- the one you could talk about the most. Um, have you ever seen Zach? You're a horror movie fan. Have you ever seen Last House on the Left? Yes. So well, we're talking about. Well, I've seen either was, one, so it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, the Last House on the Left actually gets its main idea from a Bergman film called The Virgin Spring. Um, okay. Where li- it's literally innocent girl is killed by bandits when she's traveling and then the bandits go and stay in her father's house and they figure out so it's literally the, the exact same story just set in like rural medieval sweden and i'm guessing <laughs> um, it didn't start as a porno when it was written uh, no <laughs> <laughs> um so that'll be that that's one for the recommendation list anyway seeing as okay. you're a, a horror fan at uh, the virgin spring i think that's one and i suppose obviously the face trilogy is the most obvious one uh, like Winter Light, Tour Glass Darkly, which is my favorite Bergman film, mm-hmm. and The Silence, which I actually haven't seen, um, which was also on the, the list of the poll before we chose this one. Um, yeah, I, I didn't get a lot of faith in this one. I don't know. Um, I, like, nor, like, I suppose it wasn't even a scene. I suppose there was, I can't tell, I can't remember if the graduate, or not the graduation, but where he was getting his honorary doctorate. I think that was in a church. But well, I think yeah, and that goes through like the the guilt and being guilt guilty of guilt and stuff like that. And I guess there's a a, a sense of sin to be talk about, but as a major theme, I think I would yeah, I, I would probably need to see his other stuff to tie it in. Yeah. So one of the sorry for my scatteredness here, I had this written down and I couldn't find it when I was saying the question. There was two characters that were in the car with the with the young woman, right? And there was like the priest and then there was um oh, uh, yes. the other Yes, I remember the two young guys, and they were they were they were um, arguing over whether or not God is real. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, well, um, they were up on a hill or something, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, they had an actual sense. fight about it. Right. They had an actual fight about it, right? And then they got called back to the car, and it was like civil. But it's like you know, I just feel like, and there, there, this message is, just seems to be in all of his films, and I thought it was an interesting thing here, where he he literally wrote two characters that were fighting about this question <laughs> of whether or not God's real. It feels like he's he's really wrestling with this. Uh, you know, if if you believe the thing that every uh, every film or every script is about the person writing the script in some way, then it, it feels like this is a theme for him that keeps popping up in, in a lot of material. I, I guess it could tie back to the main theme of this just in finding purpose and everything else. I mean, that is an element of how people do find purpose and all that. And I mean, I can't tie it in more than that, but that'd be my guess. Yeah, for sure. Like you'll find with the theme of faith in Bergman's films, it's not necessarily a faith in like from a religious point of view, a faith in a, in a God, obviously some of them, it is quite literally about that, but a lot of times it's just about faith in, in other people as well, faith in humanity and just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to find a reason to keep on living. Um, uh, yeah, but no, that was, I, I completely forgot about that scene and it, it is literally like, he did not have to make that scene where the two guys are, are, are fighting over whether or not God is real. So it, obviously it's a, it's something deliberate, which became much more pr- pronounced in his, in his later work. Yeah. I suppose I have a question um, in regard like this, the cast, if you're familiar with Bergman films, the cast is obviously very familiar. Obviously uh, you won't notice sex is kind of more just a general discussion about how you thought the cast was like BB Anderson is probably the most obvious we can talk about because she played two mm-hmm. roles Mm-hmm. Um, obviously she was the hitchhiker and then also Isaac's cousin slash sort of lover. I, I'm not going to go into the whole 
incestuous part. Don't worry, we'll get into different. that theme later with death by hanging. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that's, that's actually true. I forgot about that as well. Uh, we actually have a common theme between the two films, incestuous relationships. Um, yeah, obviously, look, it's a different time. It's a different culture. I'm not really going to get, I'm not really going to bog down too much on that. Uh, but yeah, BB was great. Um, BB is a, she's a very, um, she, she works at Bergman a lot. Um, Bergman was a dog, I'm pretty sure she was with Bergman as well for a while before he dumped her and moved on to Liv, uh, Liv Ullman, who is also, who's probably my favorite actress ever. And she's in a lot of his sixties and seventies work. Um, mm-hmm. Bergman was a bit of a dog. Um, yeah, BB was great. Uh, obviously Max von Sydow, the legend himself shows up for two minutes to play a gas attendant. Who's probably the, the greatest actor to ever play a gas attendant in a two minute scene. Yeah. Uh, even though he only shows up briefly, Gunnar Bjornstrand, who again makes a lot of appearances in later Bergman films, didn't really get a lot to do here as as Evald, um, Isaac's son. Um, didn't get a lot to do, but I, I still think, I don't know, just something about him. He's just so stoic. He just really brings a sort of gravitas to all of his roles, even when he's only in it for like two seconds, you're just sort of drawn to him. Um, so I'm just curious to see like what you talk like, Obviously, especially for you, Zach, without seeing any other sort of Bergman films and knowing who his regulars are. Like, is there any sort of cast that jumped out to you? Any, anything like that? I, I hate that I, I don't know any of their names. The one who played his, uh, his niece, mm-hmm. that's... I, I don't know her name. I can't even oh, remember her character's name. His, off his, his daughter-in-law, do you mean? Daughter-in-law, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. daughter-in-law. In- I, I really Thulin. liked her a lot. Uh, I, I really enjoyed just... She had a good presence. And I mean, the um, main actor who Chris can tell me the name of, because I can't <laughs> pronounce it. I, I thought they played <laughs> off each other really well. And so I was just really impressed with her more than anybody else. They did, yeah. And it's kind of... A, she's actually not in a ton of other Bergman films. Um, maybe because Bergman couldn't sleep with her because she was married. <laughs> so that's probably, probably. why... Like, I'm, I'm just being honest here. It's probably why. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just looking at her her Wikipedia. She was in Winter Light, actually, and she was in The Silence. Oh, yes. Now I recognize her. She's in... There's a really great underseen Bergman film. It's on the Bergman box, and it's called The Right. It was 1969. It's only an hour long. Uh, it's on the channel as well. This is just a mental film. This is another film that started as a stage play, and then it became a TV movie. And it's just about these, basically these three actors who are in like a traveling, a traveling troupe or like a traveling play who go to towns and just do this play. And they're basically all being interrogated by the police chief because their play is deemed to be blasphemous. And these three characters are just absolute, they're, they're just, they're just bonkers. And the whole, nearly the entire film just takes place in a very, very, very barren um, interrogation room. Uh, and yes, yeah, she is in that. I I thought it was B.B. Anderson, but obviously I misremembered it. It was Ingrid Thurman. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, definitely recommend that film. That's another great okay. one. Um, especially because it's only an hour long, so it's not a big investment and it's just wild. Um, yeah, she was she was very good in this. Um, with, I, again, I had, I'd only seen her in, in those two films beforehand. And obviously we probably know why she wasn't in more Bergman films. Uh, or at least I speculate why uh, Chris can confirm when he's on the seance next time. Um, yeah, no, she she was very good. Yeah, the the way the dynamic she had with uh, with Victor Schuström was was really really great. Um, somebody in our discussion, I forget who it was. Somebody brought up the idea that like Bergman was pretty bad at casting ages, and I thought that was kind of a funny insight. Like the people in the car did not look like teenagers, and uh, Gunnar did not look like a thirty eight year old man. 
Um, I, I thought that was a pretty funny insight. I have to kind of agree. <laughs> I think that's definitely a case of him just sort of casting the actors rather than the parts. Totally. He's like, totally. I want to work with this actor. I'm going to fit him into this part. Um, and it, I don't think it ruined the story. It's just, I thought it was kind of a funny observation. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, and and then, um, you know, it's funny seeing Gunnar uh, as a, a son, because as you said, like he's in a lot of Bergman's later work, he usually plays a little bit more of a senior figure and kind of authoritative figure. And he has like such a commanding presence when he's in a lead role. Um, so it was interesting seeing him here and like a, a, as a son, uh, just just a nice little little toy. But yeah, actually, I, to be honest, I'm with Zach. I think that uh, Ingrid Thulin is is just she commands the screen when she's on it. She's fantastic, and and her and and then uh, the Godfather of Swedish cinema when they're going back and forth, they they bicker really well, and it's kind of endearing and it's sweet. You you really they build up a relationship that uh, you believe in. I think so. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. Yeah, no, I think we're in agreement here. Ingrid was the the standout here, um, definitely amongst the the supporting cast. If not, if we're including Victor Schustrom as well, Ingrid was was fantastic in this. Um, before we move on, anything else to talk about? Anything else to jump out with this? No, no, no. I, I, I'm in, I'm interested to see more, so I'll I might check out Virgin Spring actually, since that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to throw you together like a list of like three or four, and okay. I'm not expecting you to watch them straight away, but just throw, <laughs> them in, just throw them into like your watch list and, you know, they might come up. Um, yeah, Virgin Spring for you, definitely, um, especially with its link to Last House on the left. Um, the right is just fun. It's, it's like not like a top five Bergen film or anything. I just thought it was really, I just thought it was a cool little film. But yeah, the Virgin Spring, uh, Through a Glass Darkly is amazing. Again, from a horror perspective, our the wolf is just a—it's a, just a head fuck of a film. Okay. Uh, but in a good in a good way, um, it's just it's just bonkers, and yeah. my actually my favorite Bergman film, and I don't know how you feel about this one, Chris, is *The Passion of Anna*, um, which again just a great three-way performance from Max von Sydow, B.B. Anderson, and Liv Ullman, the three like sort of powerhouses of Bergman's sort of actors. They, they're all amazing in this film and it's very low key it literally just mainly takes place in a in a country house um as victor showstrom sort of has a you know a a an adulterous relationship with one actress and then ends up in a relationship with another actress who's sort of grieving after the death of her her husband and a lot of a lot of emotions in that film but uh, and it looks it looks stunning as well that's the one thing about later bergman films was that yeah. he worked with Sven Nickvist, who is the greatest cinematographer to ever live. Um, he didn't do the cinematography on this one, um, but he did a, pretty much all of his 60s movies. Sven was behind the camera, and Sven is incredible. Yeah. Is Passion of Anna the one that it, they kind of break character a little bit, almost to like add narrative? Of yes. like, or like a description? they do. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, they talk about their characters. It's great. They literally... They'll like just take a break for like two minutes and just say like it'd be Max von Sydow just sitting there talking to the camera and going, and yeah, I think this character here is kind of feeling yeah. like this, and it's just it's it's really really cool. And it doesn't that it sounds doesn't... like some Jorvatsky stuff, like Holy Mountain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like it's no, it's 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 really cool, and it doesn't take away from the main narrative at all. Like it's only it's only little very brief intercuts. Mm-hmm. Um, it... You know, I wonder if there's something in the water in Sweden because there's another film. I'm just looking at 1967. So when was Passion of Anna? Passion of Anna was 68, I think. 
the yeah okay 68 69 and curious okay so there's another swedish film called i am curious yellow oh yeah i've heard of those i haven't seen them they're meant to be very explicit sexually well there's kind of there's a whole backstory there which we could do a whole other podcast on these movies because there was a court case defining pornography and the Uh, the the balance between like art films and pornography um and i'm curious yellow like doesn't hide nudity at all but like it never feels erotic it's so anyways an interesting discussion um and that got all the way to a supreme court case so that's kind of what it's famous for but the film itself is super funny and very self-aware to the point where they break fourth wall all the time and it's kind of like a film within a film and then people talking about the film that's being made and it's all on camera but it's just interesting that those both came from sweden and they're kind of that that narrative style is is relatively close right around the same time in history so maybe that was a group where they were all sitting around talking about something to try i don't know well, I just looked it up. Uh, the I Am Curious films were 67 and 68, respectively, and Impassion of Anna was 69. So, yeah, it's probably Bergman saw it and thought, that's cool, I'll use that. Probably. <laughs> you know, you were talking about Coker uh, last podcast, or maybe two yeah. ago, about how it's like the film, and then sort of the finding that one of the people in the film, and then the making of the film, mm. um, or, or some, something like that. That's and that's exactly, exactly it, how, yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly how I Am Curious is, too. So Yellow is like, you, you have the film, and then blue was sort of a reflection on yellow. Um, anyways, it's very, very meta like that. But... That sounds pretty cool, actually, because I, I did enjoy that part of the Coker trilogy because literally is first film is just the film. And then the second mm-hmm. film is about a journalist going to find the, the child actor who starred in the first film because that area was devastated by an earthquake in real life. And then the third film is basically about them making the second film. So <laughs> it's just it's just it's like a Russian doll. Um, so yeah, I do like that narrative. Um, uh, yeah, just I, I like the way that, that that kind of stuff is done. It's interesting. Hey, everybody, uh, for our recurring segment, Collection Corner, uh, where we talk about how other people take our money and we love it. <laughs> Damn. Um, I, uh, yeah, so, you know, today I think we it's been kind of like a review themed for the last couple of weeks, now we're just into 2021, so no more point on, on reflecting. Now we just move forward here. Uh, I am so excited. Uh, the uh, limited edition slipcover of Stetson Tango came in with with the movie, not just the slipcover. Um, and it's the most interesting slipcover I've ever seen, which is probably a really geeky thing to say. But it doesn't slip in or out. It sort of folds like an envelope, so it's a it's a different style that I've seen. Um, and it's seven and a half hours long, so I can't say I'm going to watch it tomorrow, but uh, I'm excited to revisit it again. It's one of those movies that, have either one of y'all seen it? No. I, I can't bring myself to watch that kind of length of a film. So it's, first of all, it, if you think of it like a Netflix miniseries, it's, it's broken into 40-minute chunks. Oh, okay. Um, makes life easier. Yeah, so it's 12 40-minute chunks, and if you have a slightly longer attention span, it's three two-and-a-half-hour movies, or, or thereabouts, because um, there's two intermissions. So there's multiple ways to bring it up. You know, the Bellatar recommends watching the whole thing, but let's be real, it's not going to happen. Um, our attention spans, I think there are even like some science around how our brains are changing. Our attention spans suck now compared to 50 years ago so, or 30 years ago, whatever. But um, anyways, so I got that in, super excited about that. And I was able to complete the uh, Vinegar Syn- Syndrome archive uh, collection. So they're all hand numbered limited editions that come in a sleeve where the only opening is on the bottom. So it's just kind of like you slide it over the over the disc uh, and uh, they're they're hand numbered, which appeals to every one of my sensibilities. Uh, and I'm working my way through them and I'm going to start posting uh, uh, 
I'm trying something out. So far, it's gotten a little bit of traction, not too much, but just for the boutique Blu-ray channel on or subreddit, I mean, on uh, on Reddit, I'm just taking some of these different kind of boutique players and putting a little brief, uh, I think I'm calling it exposure to series on that, see if it gets any discussion going or if anybody, you know, people go on there a lot of times to figure out if they're going to buy something. So I'm going to start doing that soon on there. Um, I just saw the second one and they are the definition of so bad it's good. The budget is is crazy low, and like the dialogue is horrible, but it's kind of right up my alley. So so far, I've been enjoying those. I'm a little jealous of the vinegar syndrome stuff. That I'm not gonna lie. How, how long did it take you to collect all that? It's just a matter of paychecks. Like there's um, <laughs> there's the ones that are, if you buy them, you know, during like the when they're when they're coming out or pre order or whatever, it's super easy. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these are limited to like. 2,500 or 2,000 or 3,000. So uh, the most expensive one was Savage Harbor, which it's so funny that like, you know, a, not, a, a, a terrible movie really with starring Sylvester Stallone's brother, Frank, and, and Robert Mitchum's brother, Chris, uh, playing like dock workers and have really laconic dialogue and, and stilted writing. Like, the, you know, I'd pay 80 bucks for that movie, but there you go. Um, that, was, that was the hardest one to find. I've been there, so I understand. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, now going forward, it's just a matter of keeping up with it. So it's going to be a little easier, hopefully. Um, Zach? Um, I guess the two I'm going to talk about is I, I don't have them yet. I've, I've got them ready. Uh, tomorrow I will be getting Unearth's um, release of a Serbian film. I know. Uh, don't I know? No judgment here. <laughs> I will. I will have that in my collection since it's been so hard to have it in the U.S. And it will probably never be watched again because I've already seen it once. But a part of me feels like much. it's almost necessary to have it for preserve for preservation on how difficult it is to find it and how much controversy has been around it. So I'm excited to own it. Never probably going to rewatch it again. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to have a reason to. But. Hey, I'll at least get to see. This is my first one I've ever got from Unearthed. Uh, I hear they make really good stuff. I hear the transfers are great. So I'm excited for that. Um, and the other one I got is I'm getting into Grindhouse releasing. The only one I've had from them is Cannibal Holocaust. And Adam's going to start judging my collection here in a second. <laughs> not my, not my um, <laughs> uh, I got Sallow, too. I can just have all three together. <laughs> Triple feature. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I got, uh, they have a spaghetti Western, um, and contrary to my review of Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, I love spaghetti Westerns, but they have one for, uh, the big gun down, which I have not seen, um, Lee Van Cleef. Uh, I'm very excited to see it. The release looks fantastic. As long as the guy from eBay doesn't take two years to give it to me, like my other ones have been, it, I'm, I should hopefully have it by the next podcast, but those are my two main ones. Hey, no, no judgment on on the Serbian film. I don't know if I'm gonna buy it, but that's exactly what I did for Solo. Like, I saw it. I was like, never again. But I, I'm gonna eventually try to be complete on Criterion. So at some point, I'm gonna have to buy the bullet, bite the bullet, and I just did. And uh, oh, gotta get number one. And what what is number one? The great is it the great? What is number uh, one on Grand Illusion? Grand Illusion. Yep. That's it. Yeah, I got a little bit lucky in the first 150 or so because that's the, the first round of when I was super into collecting, kind of mm -hmm. like right around 2001 through three. So even before I got back into collecting, you know, a year and a half ago, I probably had 70 of the first 150 or 80 of the first 150, including a lot of the ones like RoboCop and Spinal Tap yeah. that people, you know, a lot for now. So I got a little bit lucky in that sense. Um, some of those are going for a pretty penny now. The one I regret the most is I remember when they announced Third Man was going to be going out of print, 
And there were like three copies at my Barnes and Noble. And I, I had never seen I, I, and I was just like, should I buy one? And I was like, no, I don't know anything about it. Because I didn't. I just knew it was going out of print. I just started getting into collecting and a lot of film. And now I hate myself a lot because I love that movie now that I've seen it. And I'm like, I'll never be able to have it. <laughs> and new, new sec, the next section of uh, Collection Corner is going to be dealing with self-hate. Uh, starting next. <laughs> isn't isn't that what collection corner always is <laughs> just not not jumping on things when you could i think we all have horror stories where we should have bought something and we didn't and then we regretted it afterwards um and i've and some of those i bit the bullet on and made it even worse on myself <laughs> this this actually leads me great into my collection corner because it's a set that i knew nothing about and i bought it because I know that Arrow sets normally, that the actual box sets normally go out of print pretty quick and then they just release it as like a single disc uh, Blu-ray. Um, so I, I hopped on this and I'm glad I did actually. Um, so now I'm going to make all the all the Yanks who listen to us angry because it's, it is region B only. Um, it's the Survivor Ballads, um, which is basically three films called uh, by Shahai Imahura. Um, I had, I, I'm not going to lie, I'd never seen an Imahura film, or Imamura, I should say. Um, I'd never seen an Imamura film. Uh, I'd heard of him, um, but obviously the Japanese New Wave was a big blind spot for me. But these are three of his sort of later films. Um, there's The Ballad of Narayama, which is not the more famous one, which was made in like 50-something, um, which is like, a, this is like kind of like a, it's like a retelling of the same folktale. So that's not like it's a remake. They're both based on folktales, and this is like another retelling of it. Um, there's Zagan, which is like a look at basically the prostitution industry post-war Japan. And then there is Black Rain, which which is the only one I've watched so far at a set, and it's just a phenomenal film. It's shot in this really high-contrast black and white. Amazing performances. The scenes that take place, it, basically the, the, the plot of the film is um, this family who were on the outskirts of Hiroshima uh, during the nuclear blast. Um, they basically went in after the blast to try and help people. They didn't realize the dangers, and then the family have all started dying off from radiation poisoning, cancer, etc. And basically, it's this, it all takes place in this small village there to sort of rehabilitate people who were who were caught in this. And it's basically an uncle and his niece, and his niece doesn't seem to be sick. She gets doctor's notice saying she's not sick. But he has real trouble marrying, like marrying her off, which is obviously a big thing in Japanese culture, uh, of marrying daughters and nieces off and stuff like that. And they have real trouble marrying her off because all the families assume that she's eventually going to get sick and die from cancer because she was caught in the titular black rain that fell uh, on Hiroshima afterwards. And like, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's a harrowing film. It's bleak as hell, especially the scenes that take place immediately after the bombing, where there's people walking around just in absolute bits and pieces. And Imamura pulls no punches with his with his depiction of it, but it's such a human film as well. The characters are just all phenomenal. They don't, you know, they they really don't really put too much pressure on the whole, you know, anti-war or anti-America sort of aspect of it, or you know, screw the Americans, what have they done to us kind of thing, which a lot of a lot of post-war cinema in Japan kind of subtly takes digs at. This is just more about case of. Like how are we like how are we gonna survive this? How are we gonna get through this as as humans? And it's a really it's it's a the film is as beautiful as it is horrible and bleak. It's it's kind of the best way I can describe it. And it's a really really nice set. 
Um, they did only release it in Region B, um, but I did see on Arrow's Instagram, if you are into digital collecting or watching stuff digitally, they are actually selling all uh, three the three films um, separately for like two ninety nine each on iTunes and Apple TV. So if you did want to see them, they are available that way. Um, but if you're region free, I'd highly recommend the box set because it's a really gorgeous looking set. Um, and so far, the films are just knockouts. And what did you say the name of it was so I can put it on a list of things? To um, <laughs> well, the, the name of the actual box set is called Survivor Ballads, three films by Shohei Imamura. Um, oh, I see. it's the one with the the bird on the front, right? Yeah, is that the one? Exactly, okay, I have that's, seen. Exa- that's exactly the one. Yeah, it has a, a crow on the front um, of, of the box set. Um, which, again, if you're region free, good for you. I definitely recommend ordering it sooner rather than later because my experience with Arrow box sets is they yeah. tend to go after a few months, usually within definitely within the year. Like they will usually, they will pretty much always re-release the films themselves, but as like a single Blu-ray, maybe on like two discs, sometimes, yeah. but usually just one. Um, so like even like like I have like Criterion didn't release Decalogue here in Europe, so I have like the Arrow copy of Decalogue, but it's like just one Blu-ray disc across like mm. three discs inside, and it's just it's as collectors you'll know it's just not as aesthetically pleasing. You mm-hmm. want the if you're if you have th- multiple films, you want the box set. You don't want it all on one disc. I was kind of miffed when Samurai Trilogy came in today, and I'm like, this is only one disc. I thought it'd be like a digi pack or something. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, if you're region free, def or or if you're region B, if you're one of if you're from my side of the pond, um, definitely recommend picking it up. If you are not region free and you still want to watch the films, um, they are on iTunes slash Apple TV for pretty cheap. So yeah. Definitely recommend them. Oh, and speaking of uh, uh, for some Region A, Chris, we can finally get Memories of Murder on Blu-ray because I know you guys have had a Region B for a while, right? Mm, or in their Region B Blu-ray it, for that? Yeah, a couple of months. Uh, Artificial yeah. Eye put out a, a double disc of like it's the most ugliest packaging ever because it's literally <laughs> split in half down the middle, with one half being for Memories of Murder and then the other half being for. As a barking dogs never bite or something along those lines. Yeah. That that one, his first one. That's um, excellent. It's literally like, a I don't really like Artificial Eye as a company anyway because they literally just put out bare bones. They don't put a lot of work into like there's no pretty much never any special features. Um, sometimes their transfers are hokey as hell, and the most infuriating thing is when you like have, you know, the spine. Their spines are upside down compared to every other company. A lot of my Germany ones are like that for some uh, reason. So, yeah, it's it just really grinds yeah. my gears when I have them together. I, I just I just turn them upside down so that they can at least be facing the same way as everything else because it's just it just annoys the crap out of me. It's funny. There's probably a whole other uh, collection corner topic just on continuity amongst uh, labels. Like Arrow Video, I think unfortunately is horrible at that. They have like so many. They have every single size and shape of box. You can imagine, and, and like it, it becomes a nightmare to kind of like piece them all together. But and then Criterion was like, "Well, we're going to take our box sets and have them have no rhyme or reason to any of them." <laughs> and then there's like, "Yeah, right." The yeah, exactly <laughs> table books. Um, anyways, all right. And for our next segment, we're going to be looking at a Japanese film called Death by Hanging. Um, it was voted in just this week, so. 
What'd you guys think? Let's start with uh, Chris. What'd you think of Death by Hanging? Man, where do you start with that movie? So, okay, I, I, the way that my brain was trying to figure out like how to talk about it when I was kind of writing up on it, and I, I just wound up on this rabbit hole of satire and kind of digging into like the history of satire because, you know, I felt like within one movie was a really sort of Dr. Strangelove style kind of comedy driven satire, which is the first, you know, whatever, 45 minutes or an hour. Um, and then as the and as the movie descends away from some of the comedy, I mean, it's always there, I guess, a little bit. But as it descends more into the message uh, and then into some of the more surrealist stuff that happens in the film in the end, uh, it felt like a little bit more of a, a you know, there's so like there's three different kinds. There's like the Horatian satire, which is more sort of funny. And the juvenilian, which is more just angry, and then the manipian, which is kind of like I'm going to get this wrong. It's not like it's in between, but it's, it's supposed to be lighter, but but still with a very clear kind of culturally driven like message in it. And that felt like maybe that was where he kind of ended up. I don't know if it was intentional on his part, but you know, I guess almost like South Park in a way, it kind of felt like there was humor first, but driving home a really relevant like cultural point. Uh, and and something that you know speaking of post-world war japan um this was sort of tied into the way that not i guess not necessarily the world war but the way that japanese have historically treated koreans uh and imprisoned koreans and i think that they were using this death sentence as a really kind of powerful metaphor to have a discussion around the treatment of like the other right and then um i the last thing i'll kind of say because i'm sure there's a, a ton of rich discussion here is that I think he kind of reflected back very well that the Japanese, um, the, the people that were actually doing the judging, carrying out the judgment, carrying out the sentence, had uh, actually the same qualities that they were accusing this Korean man of, and and they they were willing to do it for no reason. And at least in the in the way that this Korean man was portrayed, they kind of showed the reason that he was doing these things, whereas the Japanese men were doing it for just, I mean, without any motivation behind it other than just to kind of be right. And I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, angle there. So pause there. I'm sure there's lots to talk about, but that's my, that's my first, uh, first thought. I think with this film, it's kind of important, with it being a bit more of an obscure one, on the off chance someone has stumbled on here that's not aware of our film club and sort of why we do this podcast, I, I want to just briefly just talk about what actually happens from a very basic standpoint in this film. So essentially, we have uh, the whole film pretty much nearly nearly almost entirely takes place in the execution room of a Japanese prison. They bring in a Korean prisoner who has been uh, tried of um, uh, brutally raping and murdering two uh, teenage girls, uh, two J teenage Japanese girls. Um, he's basically brought in uh, in the first two minutes of the film. They hang him. But plot twist, he don't die. The man just does not die. Um, they take him down. He is basically a husk, a, a vessel. He doesn't know who he is, what he is. And the, basically the brunt of the film is spent with the, with the officers trying to convince him of who he is and to face him to his guilt and what he'd done because they can't execute him again un until he does so. And, and this is kind of where the film sort of brings in. It's, it really starts as essentially a whole farce of the whole death, um, you know, the whole death penalty in itself. Um, yeah, the the film to to sum it up in one word, the film is just bonkers. It's it's like an absurdist play, 
the the Japanese characters become more and more caricatures of themselves the whole way through. They just do ri- absolutely ridiculous things, all in the name of hanging this man. Who, to be fair, he probably deserves it. Uh, you know, um, the point of this film is not to say that the the Korean man who's called just called R. Uh, the point of this film is not to say, you know, maybe he didn't deserve it. A lot of these kind of films would kind of go in and say. And it'll turn out he was framed or he didn't actually do it or something like that. Uh, whereas this, he, he straight up did it. Like, it, there's, no, there's no hiding the fact that he, he is guilty. But the point that I think Oshima is trying to drive is that he may be guilty, yeah, but so is pretty much the Jap- everyone in Japan in terms of the death penalty and not even that. It's, it's imperialism, um, which is something that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Like, when we think about Japan... This, especially from a Western point of view, you kind of forget how imperialistic they were. Like, especially this sort of ties into maybe like the human condition trilogy as well, where, you know, a lot of that takes place in Mancuria where they had basically taken Chinese as slaves. Um, so Japanese imperialism is definitely something big. That's not really talked about a whole lot. And this film really helps drive that point across that the Japanese, you know, I'm not talking about Japanese people in general, but Japanese as a government, um, and as a country, are are just as guilty of of murder as this this character of R is. Yeah, one uh one aspect I thought was really interesting, and it made me kind of go down this uh, capital punishment rabbit hole uh, for Japan. Is at the beginning they give a statistic of like seventy one percent of people in Japan are in favor of the death penalty, and I can't remember all of it, but the seventy one percent stuck out to me because especially from United States, we still have the death penalty and. 34 states um and but if you look at the how many people and you know i know in europe i think most if not all of the countries there have abolished it um here it's actually becoming less and less favorable as time goes on i think they just had the first year where more people were in favor of abolishing the death penalty than having it what's interesting when i started looking at japan and I don't know how accurate the study is, so I'm not going to sit there and say this is 100% true, but the studies that they have done is, weirdly, Japan has become more in favor of the death penalty. It's up to 80% of people are in favor of it. Um, and, you know, I thought that was interesting just on the basis that usually when you start having movies like this, we've had plenty of them in the U.S. that have talked about innocent people or the the cruelty of the death penalty and stuff like that. And you kind of feel like when a movie like this is made, it's kind of speaking for the general populace um, when that's not quite true. It seems like uh, this is a very minority take on the death penalty and how they view it, Um, which granted, I don't think that, you know, after getting through the whole thing, I don't think it's the main point is to talk necessarily about the death penalty. They kind of talk about it a lot at the beginning and then they kind of squeeze it into the very end again because the more, more middle's more about their treatment of of Korea of, of Koreans and stuff like that, um, but I just uh, kind of thought it was interesting to see uh, how perspectives have and haven't changed from 1968 to now. It's it's yeah. kind of an interesting um, sorry, Chris. Um, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, companion piece to a film we watched early in the film club, a uh, short film about killing. Because mm-hmm. they both have very similar views of the death penalty. Um, obviously, the Japanese regime at that point wasn't as strict as you know the, the sort of Polish under Soviet rule regime. But I find obviously they, they did have very similar outlooks. Or 
they're obviously very much against the death penalty uh, in probably a minority view, as as you say, Zach. And I suppose even the way the film is shot kind of hunkers down on the whole idea of being controlled or you know being suffocated by a government regime. Because one thing I noticed a lot in a short film about killing was how pretty much the only thing ever in focus was the actual actor that's in there. It kind of has this pinhole effect where the corners are kind of shaded out and it just makes you feel very suffocated. And you can mm-hmm. say the same about this film because they pretty much only stay in, in this sort of small building. You do kind of feel sort of suffocated, like the walls are kind of closing in. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting companion piece to that. It, they, they have sort of similar ideas, I find. Before we move on too much from, from that into maybe some of the more metaphor, you know, I'm thinking of there's uh, in, in business, which is kind of my, my lens, you know, it's still uh, Japan is kind of known and, and, and it's still very relevant that it's a very uh, it's a system that's really based off of experience and structure and whatever your your superior says um, you follow blindly. Like you're, you're the person who's on top is the one making the decisions. There's not. You know, here in the U.S., really, really big on this horizontal management style, where like it's like participation trophies, basically, right? Like everybody has an opinion, everybody gets along, everybody's important, uh, which has its benefits. But it, anyways, but but there that the you know the society, at least in, in business, is my my again my my lens. That's not the case, um, and I think this is kind of talked about in the movie a little bit because I think a lot of people in this film, the actors like the characters, are doing this off of duty. Uh, and, and even as some of their individual opinions start to surface around the death penalty or around the treatment of R, uh, it never takes them away from getting involved in these really bizarre shenanigans, right? And whatever the, the leader of that group says, it just goes like blindly. Like when they start reenacting some of the house sequences and when they start reenacting some of the way he's like coming up and approaching the girls and hugging them and, and, and sort of assaulting them as it gets more and more into the just bizarre and somebody would speak up and be like, Hey, this is not cool. What are we doing? They just kind of go with it. Right. And, and they just sort of like continue. And I feel like that has to be tied into his critique on Japanese society a little bit of just like how far people are willing to go and follow blindly without questioning what they're doing. Yeah, for sure. Um, that's that's a good point. I didn't really pick up on that when I was watching it, but now when you say it, yeah, it makes makes absolutely perfect sense to do, essentially to sort of blindly follow each other and and the rules. You know, obviously they they bring up that one specific rule. You know, near the start to say that they they can't hang him again or, or or whatever because you know he doesn't really um he doesn't remember or you know he doesn't face up to what's gone on and they can't hang him until then. So they are sort of doing everything in their power to possibly follow this rule because he has been judged that he needs to be hung and that he needs to die by hanging. But they can't they can't do that because of what's happened during the first hanging where he now doesn't know who he is. Mm-hmm. So they are it kind of creates a weird glitch in their in in, in their sort of reasoning because they need to do this, but they can't do it because of this, and they can't do that because of this, and they're sort of stuck in this. And this is kind of, this probably is kind of why they sort of start to go a little bit insane because they want, they need to follow these rules, but they can't because one rule is kind of, um, it's kind of um, what's the word? But yeah, one rule is making them, making it so they can't follow. Yeah, contradicting exactly the rules yeah. that they need to follow are, are contradicting each other, um. So it's kind of making everyone go a bit nuts. 
I just that sparked a whole other idea of like, you know, sort of like robots and like there's like, you know, if you create a logic loop in the robot, they just explode. We're kind of watching that moment like just before people explode, right? Because their brain can't handle this. Absolutely, yeah. One thing, um, and, I, you know, I don't think the movie should be longer. I actually do think it kind of runs a little bit longer than yeah. it should. I, I, especially the middle section, I think, could be cut down a significant amount. But one mm -hmm. thing I, I really was kind of disappointed by was, you know, we have this interesting scenario at the beginning, you know, somebody who doesn't die during an execution. Well, did they fulfill the execution? What's the difference between killing and murder? What, what makes the state able to do this and not a person and stuff like that. And then at the end, they give a very, and it, it could be, all be down to translation, but I kind of felt like they gave a really over, over simplified argument for, for, uh, for or against the death penalty and i'm like it's such a complex topic to talk about and i kind of feel like they just said we're going to sum it up like in five seconds right here and i'm like okay well I've, i thought we could explore that a little bit more because like i said they spend so much time exploring the uh, japanese treatment of koreans which i think is great it's almost like they had two messages and they were like well we got to finish both of them so just kind of push that to the back burner and we'll finish it later are you, are you going on record of saying you support the Japanese treatment of Koreans? You think that's great? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll, we'll go with that. And now the podcast is banned in Korea. <laughs> Arkshan Wook would like to know your location. <laughs> uh, a little, little dark humor there. Um, yeah. Um, no, and that's a, that's a good point. They do kind of just, they kind of just go, oh, and if you murder me, then you're a murderer. Then someone's going to murder you. And then someone's going to have to murder you and you and you. And then there'll be no one left on earth. That's pretty much what that's pretty much nearly verbatim what he kind of says. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's basically taking that whole sort of Christian ideal of uh, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind kind of thing. Um, so, you know, yeah, I murdered someone. That doesn't mean you should just murder me. Um, it does. It does kind of just feel it's oversimplified. But I suppose it just sort of comes down to Oshima's view that this should be a simple case of we shouldn't be doing this. He probably could have articulated it better and maybe brought it in better, but I suppose, yeah, it, it could have. We don't really know. I suppose we weren't there. It could have been a case something where, because he did very clearly have these two ideals, of you know, he doesn't like the death penalty, he doesn't like the treatment of Koreans, and maybe he just kind of got caught up too much in one, and then kind of didn't do enough on the other, or or just sort of got caught between doing too many things at once, where he kind of just should have stuck to one. Yeah, and I, I would love to know how close this is, because apparently this is sort of based on a real case. Like, I don't know how the execution went. <laughs> Obviously, half of the stuff in this movie didn't happen in real life, but um, I kept finding mention that, oh, it's based on this case, and then I spent a good amount of time trying to find anything out about that case, and it's, all it shows is me is, here's a synopsis of Death by Hanging, and I'm like, but what about the real person? Yeah, like I was... Uh... Like always, I, I went to reading on Wikipedia because it's just kind of the easiest place to try and find sort of brief background info on a film. And there is actually a section about that. So this film was made in 19... Oh, 1968. So ties in with last week's films. Another 1968 film. Or two weeks ago, I should say. Um, another 1968 film that's wildly different from any other 1968 film we've seen. <laughs> um, so there is a section in like the production subheading on Wikipedia. Again, obviously Wikipedia where you take it with a pinch of salt, but to be fair, it does have, um, it does have references. So they seem to have gotten this information from somewhere reasonable. 
And apparently the character of R in Death by Hanging was based on Ri Chinu, who was an yeah. ethnic Korean, yeah, who in 1958, so 10 years prior, murdered two schoolgirls. Um, yeah, apparently he confessed to his crimes but wrote, and wrote about them in great detail. And it was all published in a memoir. Um, and then, yeah, it was a, it was a correspondence between him and a Japanese, um, a Japanese journalist. And a lot of their dialogue, or a lot of ours dialogue, actually came from the correspondence between uh, Ri Chinu and the um, and Bok Junan, who was the Japanese uh, journalist. Now, obviously, I assume Ri Chinu died, but yeah, I get what you mean. It doesn't actually tell us really. Oh, yeah, interesting. And, and when you know you talking about his confession, uh, when I was going through this rabbit hole of their capital punishment. And I think it does tie in well here is one of the biggest criticisms in Japan's um, capital punishment is that they rely heavily on confessions. doesn't matter if they're done in duress or if they're coerced. And, and, and it kind of fits into this film as well because they spend at least the first third of the film just trying to convince him of something he doesn't remember. Like, you are R, you are R, here, we're going to reenact it, here, reenact it on me, and almost going like 12 angry men on the whole reenactment thing. And it, it, it kind of feels like, you know, while they don't, he's not as blatant about that, that that is an issue of just trying to force somebody to be something that they may or may not be, and just so they can execute them. Interesting. That was... Uh, um... There was, a, there was a documentary that was made in the early 2000s that was based um, very much on that idea of can you hold somebody uh, guilty if the way they gain the evidence is by convincing the, the, um, the people that were like around the crime to uh, like basically bad police work. Like if, if, it, if it turns out. Yeah. What is it? Uh, the, the, I don't know if the documentary is called that, but the term is fruit of the poisonous tree. Uh, it's a term they use in law enforcement. Um, that yeah. when you get it illegally, you've you've poisoned everything. Capturing the Freedmans. Have you all seen that? What's it called? Capturing the Freedmans. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Oh, chilling, chilling documentary because you never believe somebody's more guilty just by looking at them, but then it really questions like what you can believe based on seeing it and how the evidence is collected. Anyways, it's it's wonderful. But yeah, anyways, that's that's uh, uh, that's a chilling theme to think about. Like if you're getting coerced into. Uh, uh, saying guilty just so that they can execute this like administrative function, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Basically, um, yeah, it's, that's uh, it. If you had like an administrative function, like a a rule they have to do, it's it's yeah. So, question for y'all: Was this a successful social satire? I'm going to say yes, but flawed. And I've already kind of talked about my main flaw with it: is it just kind of wraps everything a little bit too quickly um and i do feel like like i was like watching it at some point i felt like i just got drunk or something because i kind of lost the plot of what was going on and i was like and but it's i don't think anything in the film necessarily distracts from the main message i feel like the message is still always front and center and the humor it brings with it is in is to make that message stronger or easier to understand um, so in that sense, I do think it's successful, um, just in a flawed way. Uh, yeah, I agree. The, the messages, messages is loud and clear. 
like, I, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes movies go over my head and I have to read up and I kind of think afterwards, oh, yeah, now that I read that, I get it. But this one film, I came along and I said, yeah, death penalty bad, treatment of Koreans bad. You know, it's it was it was yeah it was it was loud and clear. I, I definitely agree. It's not a perfect movie. It's 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 a crazy movie, and I highly recommend the the experience to anyone because it is an experience. This film, um, but yeah, it's it's not perfect, but the the message is is loud and clear. Yeah, I guess three thumbs up. Then I agree, and I think it's just I, I just kept thinking like what a beautiful sort of medium art can be and, and film can be to express something that might be insensitive to discuss otherwise. Um, and it, I, I think they did that well and exposed some, some real pain and trauma that I'm hoping there was some healing that happened on this from, from Korean, you know, Japanese Koreans that got to have some healing from watching this um, play out. Chris, if I remember correctly, and you're from, Te- you are from Texas, right? You were, is that where you were born? Uh, no, I, I mean, Texas is kind of home, but, uh, I, I've been around here a lot, but I moved around. Why? What's, tell me, tell me well, your question. Though. Well, with the, uh, death penalty thing, I know that was, that's a big part of Texas culture, you know, the old Sparky oh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We, we declare innocent or guilty and just get them in the street. Yeah. Which I mean, <laughs> I can't say much, uh, I'm from Virginia and they have the second most executions in the U S so it's, uh, <laughs> we're one and two on that. I was just wondering if what kind of how you're. Not your personal perspective. I'm not going to make you get into that. But, you know, watching the process for this movie, did it make you feel a specific way being so close to a state that has a big part of that in their culture? Interesting question. Uh, great, great question. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's there. The just like everything else, I think in what's happening in the U.S. right now is the, the polarization of politics is happening between city or rural, right? And that's happening pretty much everywhere. If you look at heat maps of where votes are being cast, it's not state by state anymore. It's like city versus rural. Um, uh, and, and I think Texas is a, is a great example of that too. Um, my hunch is that in the next few years that the death penalty is gonna be eliminated in Texas, which I think is gonna send shockwaves um, to, to people. Uh, but you know, I think Texas is gonna move from being on the most conservative end politically for most things to being on the most liberal uh, and the irony is it's happened because of the more conservative fiscal policies that are attracting businesses to Texas, which are mostly coming in from the West Coast and East Coast and bringing in very liberal people. So it's kind of this ironic thing that's happening where the same things that are have, uh, the same conservative fiscal policies that that make Texans proud are actually bringing the people that they don't want. <laughs> and then and flipping politically, it's, it's going to be a blue state here in the next eight years, guaranteed. Um, and I think you're going to see attitudes like like for the death penalty and stuff like that change pretty drastically. I'm as far as this goes, I'm probably more on the side of like not having the death penalty. I'm a big fan of of the idea of rehabilitation. Um, we can you and I can start another uh, social justice podcast around the the way that the <laughs> is set up here in the U.S. I think it's a joke, but um, I certainly don't think I, I you know I think more and more people in Texas are saying that if we have such a broken judicial system, like do we really want to be killing people on the back end of that? Um, and uh, where that was not the case 20 years ago, Texas was just like, uh, they seem like they did it, just hang them, you know, but it, that, it's right. becoming a more new discussion down here. Okay. It's a I different perspective it. of Texas than I'm used to hearing because, you know, Texas definitely yep. has its stereotype and everything. So that's interesting to hear firsthand. Yeah, there you go. You're I, first. Would, <laughs> I would give my account to Ireland, but I don't think we've executed anyone in like 100 years, so... <laughs> 
you're not sure how people feel about it. <laughs> that was like that's like that that was like back in this in the Irish Civil War. I'm talking about. I'm not even like talking about like proper criminals. I'm talking about prisoners during like the Irish Civil War. And even then, the guy who did the order on that, whose name eludes me, uh, even he got assassinated like 15 years later. <laughs> so it oh, it wasn't yeah. exactly a popular opinion uh, that he did it. Well, and you know, um, with Japan, um, going back to them, I kind of wonder if theirs has gotten so much higher now is because just a couple years ago, the cult that did those sarin attacks in the subway, they were just recently executed a few years ago, including the lead cult guy and everything else. So I kind of wonder if that's caused more positivity towards it and an increase from even 50 years ago. There's a, another interesting Japanese film that only came out a couple of years ago from uh, Kureda, um, mm-hmm. uh, who did Still Walking. It's called Third Murder. Uh, okay. Again, it sort of touches on similar themes. It's about a guy who's accused of murder. And, you know, a lot of the evidence points towards he did it. But the, 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 the guy who's brought in to defend him has doubts of either that he did it or the reason that he did it, because he basically kills his boss. But, you know, lots of other things come into it, but the police are just saying, like, he's basically confessed, and that's all the police care about. As much as this lawyer gets to the bottom of this story and says, well, actually, I don't think he did it, or maybe he did do it, but he did it for, like, a, a just reason, which I won't go into because it's kind of a spoiler. Um, but it's, it's left ambiguous in the film, and we don't actually really ever find out what happens because I think that's kind of the point, because as much as this lawyer tries to get this guy out of sort of limbo of being he's going to be put to death because of uh, this crime that he confessed to, uh, even if he confessed to it for certain reasons that I won't go into again for spoilers, but um, it's another good film that looks at this sort of, and it's obviously a much more modern take. This only came out, mm-hmm. I think a good few years ago. Um, it's like definitely in the last 10 years anyway. So it definitely still seems to be a, an issue where, you know, once, once you confess, they, they want you, they, they're, they're going to get what they want, which is the death penalty. And it doesn't really matter what happens in the meantime. We had a issue uh, here and it, from a serial killer, um, Henry Lee Lucas. If you ask him how many people he killed, it was over probably a thousand people. Realistically, it was probably closer to 20 or 30. Um, but he was called the drifter killer. So he was over several states, ended up becoming a federal matter. Um, and one issue that they had with him is... They also called him the confession killer because they closed out so many cases just because he said, yeah, I did it. And he'd give them the most vague thing of stuff he heard. And they're like, good enough. And of course, if you've ever watched um, America's Most Wanted, who had uh, what was his I'm trying to think of his name, the host of there, he started on that because his son was taken by uh, the partner of um, of Henry Lee Lucas, Otis O'Toole. And he's convinced Adam Lundy was, uh, and I I looked at your name, it's Adam something, and I cannot think of the last name. Um, But essentially, they, um, uh, he's convinced that he didn't actually do it and all this other stuff. So it's very fascinating how strong a confession can be, no matter where it comes from and how reliable it is. And now we come to our last segment, as always, which is any other business where we just talk about maybe a film or two that we've seen recently that we've really liked and we wanted to bring some uh, attention to uh my film um for once with me it is featured in the criterion collection i feel like i don't big up enough criterion films uh but this one is in the criterion collection i actually watched it earlier today uh, it's on the criterion channel 
Uh, I watched it as part of the Criterion Challenge 2021, which is going on on Letterboxd at the moment, which is super fun. It's making me watch a lot of films that I have been putting off for a long time, so I'd recommend checking that out. Uh, this is a Japanese film, so we're keeping with the theme of, you know, talking about Death by Hanging. This is a Japanese film uh, by Kaneto Shindo. It's called Kuraneko, uh, which means the black cat. Uh, it's a horror movie from uh, 1968. When I say horror, a lot of Japanese films from this era can be called horror, but it's not really giving it the right not really giving it the right idea of the kind of film. I like to call them supernatural films. Um, essentially, just a basic sort of plot of this um, basically opens up straight away with the rape and murder of a woman and her daughter-in-law by these traveling soldiers. The house gets burnt down. And yeah, that's like the opening of the film. It starts pretty, pretty hard. Uh, and then from there, they basically the, the two women come back as spirits and start... Um, basically seducing and then murdering any sort of passing samurai that comes that comes through the village as a, a sort of revenge for for what happened to them and so you know it starts pretty much like a like a horror movie in, in that sense but it becomes more of a tragedy then because about 20 minutes into the film um the the sort of son slash husband of the two women that were killed returns home from war um, he's been at war for the last three years. He returns home. He finds his, his family home is burnt, burnt down. Nobody can tell him what's happened to the two women. All people know is that when, when they came back after the, the, the bandits or the warriors had raided the place, they saw the place burnt down, but they didn't know where the women went, so they assumed that they were fleed or captured. Um, and eventually, obviously, he comes into contact then with the two spirits of the women, and you know it becomes sort of a tragedy because you know he wants to be with them but he can't because obviously they're spirits and it takes a really interesting turn from there so like the plot is pretty cool as it stands but what really really jumped out to me with this film was how stunning it looks the direction the cinematography is just insane the staging the lighting is just incredible again it's shot in a really high contrast black and white so a lot of scenes the characters will just be ba- surrounded just by pure darkness and they'll be like lit up by like a single light and maybe you'll see like a spirit character just sort of show up behind them again just bathed in a in a in a spotlight or something like that and it just it looks it looks incredible it looks like something that you'd imagine from like a dark fairy tale or something like that it's oh. it's really really cool how shindo made and staged and, and sort of uh photographed this film um because it, it I'm pretty sure the whole film is done mostly on sound stages, but he he really made it look fantastic. And uh, the brunt of the film, where the sort of where the house was, where the spirits now dwell, is in this bamboo grove. And there's a lot of scenes of the characters sort of walking through the bamboo, and it's drenched in fog. And the, the the way the black and white is so high contrast, it just creates this incredible imagery. It's one of the best looking films I've seen in a long, long time. Um, so again current echo it's on the criterion channel it's been it's released on physical media by criterion as well highly recommend i've been putting it off for a long long time um but i highly recommend it. and i'm surprised i didn't watch it earlier because i'm just double checking this as i don't want to get it wrong uh yes this was the same guy who made anebaba which is another really great kind of japanese folk sort of supernatural horror film um and, and i loved anebaba um so surprised like i I was surprised this one took me so long to get to. Um, yeah, Current Echo, fantastic film. One of the best films I've seen in a long time. Okay. Um, uh, actually, just to 
I'd say about a week ago, I watched a movie that I'd heard a lot about, have never got around to it. Um, James Mangold's second film. Uh, if you're not familiar with him, he, he does a lot of big budget stuff now. Like uh, he did Logan and did Ford versus Ferrari, 310 to Yuma remake. Um, but his second film was a movie he wrote called Copland, uh, which has a great cast. It had uh, Sylvester Stallone, Harvey Keitel, Ray Liotta, uh, Robert De Niro. Fantastic cast. Movie completely bombed. Um, it was supposed to be kind of a return to form for Stallone. Um, but, you know, putting him in much more of that to not as much as an action star, but as an, just an actor. Um, so he kind of pl- he plays the sheriff of this town in New Jersey where this town was built by these NYPD officers who uh, basically it ends up being a front for mob connections. And he plays the sheriff of the town that he kind of gets appointed to this because he's lost his hearing in one ear. So he can never be an NYPD officer. It was his dream to always do it. Um, and it, really, I, I guess the main part of the film is something I dealt with when I dealt with a little bit in corrections was the issue with complacency and apathy. Um, you know, it's a major problem. And that's kind of Stallone who, you know, this isn't a movie about cop shootouts or anything like that. It's really about him becoming the sheriff or becoming the law officer he really needs to become, um, you know, because when you, when you think of Stallone in a cop role, you, you're thinking it's going to be more like a, a Buford Pusser, uh, walk tall and carry a big stick type of role. And he's so reserved in it. Uh, he, and he, it, it's definitely for me, one of my favorite performances by him probably since, you know, Rocky and um, the original one and then his performance in Creed and stuff like that. Um, just a really great movie with a great cast. Um, if you can find it on the director's cut, I highly recommend that version. Um, it's not as confusing because they didn't just randomly take out important plot points. Um, but yeah, um, good movie. Uh, it was Stallone that I thought was just a little uh, underappreciated. What are the odds on this podcast that we would have brought up a movie starring Stallone and his brother Frank? <laughs> I thought about that when you said it. <laughs> podcast first um criterion favorite sylvester stallone uh, <laughs> um friend of the podcast frank stallone friend, yeah actually that might be true i could probably reach him <laughs> um uh okay so there's a couple different ways i could go with mine um there i, I i'll talk about two actually but i want i'll make them quick because i want to cover i'm excited to cover them both so one is a movie that was made for fifty five thousand dollars and uh, it's it's an AGFA release. Uh, I think we've covered them before on here. I, I don't think they're outside of Region A, so sorry, sorry, Adam, but um, American Genre Region Film Archive. Remember, sorry. I'm Region 3 now. Nailed it. That's right, you are. Congratulations. That makes two out of the three of us that are Region Free, right? I'm the one. Zach, aren't you as well? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, I was like, I, I thought you were for some reason, Chris. I, I couldn't remember. I forgot you weren't. No, I'm, I'm purposely doing it because I have zero self-control. Um, I'm going to start sending you links uh, randomly. <laughs> <laughs> if I have the ability to buy from Australia, you bet I would. So I'm purposely waiting. But um, uh, so it's an AGFA release. And by the way, a quick plug for AGFA, the, the board of advisors for AGFA, it includes Paul Thomas Anderson and Nicholas Wending Riffin or whatever his name is. Like, it's insane the board of advisors they have to put out like films that were made for $10,000. So I think what they do is pull together their personal collections of like stock footage and like just sort of uh, um, 
reels that they've like assembled over the years and they put together, they put out the best possible version of these films that have never been seen. So uh, effects was made in, in like 1970 something. It doesn't really matter. Tom Savini starred in it and it was kind of famous for that. That was like the big thing in it. Um, uh, and it's the you know, first time really in front of the camera for him, I think, or one of the few times he's in front of the camera. But the basic ask, was that Tom Savini, the the special effects artist. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, cool. um, it, it was, and and the basic premise of the story is there's a there's a film crew shooting a horror film, and the the narrative pulls out and and starts to you, you start to get to know the crew, and and so it's sort of like the film crew as well as the film, and then you realize that the producer of the film is with uh, unbeknownst to everybody else is shooting a snuff film uh, with everybody there. And it doesn't really ever get into like a lot of on-screen violence or anything like that. It's more kind of dealing with like the terror around as things start to happen to everybody and the crew as well as, you know, well, I guess it's all just the crew and cast uh, that when there's just unexpected horror um, and, and, and it kind of, it all happens in a, in a great timing to where it's never confusing as to what's going on, like it's handled well, but it's also a nice surprise, and it's also just sort of like I'm not I'm not giving spoilers away. Like it, you, when you watch it, you'll see that it's just a fun, interesting, very unique watch. Um, and Tom Savini part is silly, but luckily there's like real actors that have been on, they've gone on to have like careers of making like 70 or 80 films, and he's allowed to just be silly in it. But I think they wanted him in there just to get his name out, trying to get distribution for the film. So that's one. I just wanted to bring attention to it because it's so fun. And so it caught me off guard with how interesting it was. Total end of the spectrum, keeping in theme of the podcast and in some of the stuff we've been talking about, Japanese post-war, World War II, uh, Hiroshima. Uh, there's a, uh, a complete breakdown of law and order. And there's a, there's a natural sort of criminal uh, enterprise that, that begins in the city of Hiroshima. And there's a, uh, a bunch of the, the mob bosses were, were eventually kind of captured and imprisoned if they weren't killed. One of them goes to prison and writes his memoir right before he goes to the death penalty, speaking of this, um, and writes his memoir. And a reporter picks up the memoir and makes a, and kind of then gets it into it and starts producing these stories once a week in the papers, which then gets picked up by a production studio. And over the course of a few years, they make five movies called Battles Without Honor and Humanity. And I am two into the five. Uh, as well as the, a special edition that they put out for this box set from Arrow. But I'm too into the five, and it's just fantastic filmmaking. Like, it's sort of like, y'all remember the Cassavetes film we saw where people were just screaming at each other the whole time? Yeah. Um, it's like that level of energy where it's just like frenetic, kind of chaotic energy, but it's, it's you know, it's for a purpose where uh, they're, they're really trying to show, I think, just that world, like right after World War II, how everything was unknown, everything was unsettled, uh, and, and it's it's a series of, of films that follows loosely follows one character. Although around this one character, there's there's all the different crime families that are rising and falling, and betrayals, and and all these kind of Shakespearean big tragedy uh, sort of themes that are that are told through a, uh, a mafia series, uh, and it's it's really great. And you said the name of that one was. Uh, there's the the series is called Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Oh yeah, I saw the first one. Okay, I wanted to make sure I wasn't insane. Okay, saw the first yeah, yeah. one. Let's see the other four. Yeah, exactly. There's Hiroshima Deathmatch, and then and then uh, Proxy Wars, the third one, which I'm just about to start. But they're all kind of under that umbrella. Uh, they were released in the states as Yakuza papers initially. That was another name that people might know. But uh, yeah, they're just fantastic. So 
And and I will second at least the first one is fantastic. I really need to get to the other ones as I love the first one a lot. Just a, a quick question on the first one you brought up, uh, just in regards to Agfa. You said that Nicholas Spending Reffin, like this, as I know that he does a lot of um, he does a lot of restoring. He does a lot of restorations of like mm-hmm. low budget '60s and '70s movies. And Indicator brought out Night Tide. Have you guys seen Night Tide? No. Um, it's a really early Dennis Hopper role. The film is just wild. It's about this um, Dennis Hopper plays a sailor. I think he's a sailor. He's someone in the army anyway, who's just vacationing at the seaside town. And he starts hanging out with this girl who he suspects is actually a mermaid. But like, it, it goes into like horror aspects and dark fantasy aspects. It's it's a really weird, wild film. And, and Nicholas Winding Refn was part of the team who did a restoration on that. Um, I think it's on, it was definitely, I watched it on Mubi. Now, obviously, I know movie sort of change what's on there region yeah. by region, but um, yeah. yeah, if you ever if you ever have a chance to catch it, Indicator have a Blu-ray of it. Um, but I saw it on movie. Uh, it's called Night Tide. Um, that's why I was just asking if if that had come out as part of that Agfa release thing because I know that obviously Nicholas when uh, Nicholas Winding Refn is is heavily sort of into restoring those kind of films. I'd have to check that out, but I found the sentence. I want to read this out to y'all because this is just nuts. So our archive counts among its advisors. This is from the AGFA website. Um, Alamo Draft Test founders, Tim and Carrie League, which is more meaningful, I think, in Texas. That's just a, they're kind of like legends here. Filmmakers, Paul Thomas Anderson, Anna Biller, Frank Henenlotter, which is amazing, Nicholas Winding Refn, and then musician Riza. <laughs> um, uh, and then the, the, the wife of the, the guy who started something weird video, uh, her name is Lisa Petrucci, which kind of she's taken the, the charge to, to put out these weird films. Uh, and it's just it's crazy that they're all just sitting in a room together, like imagining and dreaming of what's going to come up next. So um, anyway, so, kind of like fun... kind of like the weird cousin of the film foundation where it's like Martin Scorsese and Spielberg and Coppola yeah. and George Lucas. And then this is this is like their weird cousin who like really likes cheesy crappy movies <laughs> basically yeah exactly which adam if you ever get to come to the u.s you should go to an alamo draft house if there's one within like a decent distance they're really cool we have one here in north carolina as well so they're awesome what are they what are they sorry they're basically an adult I, when i say adult i don't mean like x-rated but they're more centered on adult enjoyment of going to films like they show a lot of like older stuff they have a full menu they take a lot of pride in the don't use your cell phone do not talk and if you do they'll kick you out like just straight up they do not play around if you, you get warned once and then after that you're kicked out that's cool now i've been to a couple of theaters like that they've the the irish film institute up in dublin are very much like that they sort of show a mix of either sort of new art house movies or and they also do like they'll do like reviews where they'll show like some Fellini films or some Rossellini films or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that was actually where I saw Grand Budapest Hotel because that was before Wes Anderson got super big and all the generic cinemas weren't showing it down here. So I went up to Dublin just to see Grand Budapest Hotel. And then wow. there's, a, there's another really great one in Manchester in the UK. Um, oh, I just can't remember what it's called. I've been there twice. I can't remember what I saw there the first time, but the second time I saw Boyhood when that was out. Um, yeah, that, I've been to those kind of theaters before. They're 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 definitely great compared to you know just your general sort of um, you know general cinema that's going to be showing whatever Fast and Fury Furious movie is out at the moment. There's, there's always there's a great, one. Oh, sorry, Adam. There's a, there's a great audio clip of 
uh, just to show how true they are to their purpose, somebody called and complained because she got kicked out. And she, she was like just yelling at the customer service person at Alamo. And they thought it was so funny that they took away any identifying information and put it on their social media just so people could laugh at this person who was complaining at getting kicked out of the theater. Like they don't, they don't mess around. You're done. <laughs> that sounds like my paradise because nothing, nothing grinds my gears more than talking in a, in a theater. And even though movie stores have went away, the one we have here in Raleigh is a, you can actually rent movies from there and it's, it's great. I love it. It's uh, I forget what they call it. Retro maybe either way. And then they'll have people like Joe Bob Briggs come in and do like a talk, which was awesome. I got to go meet him and, yeah, if you're ever here, Alamo's awesome. I, I highly recommend it. They have a bunch of different craft beers, not terrible beers we make here in the U.S. So, <laughs> you can actually, they get live some by, sponsored by Alamo Draft House Films. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and that wraps up this week's episode of They Live by Film. You can catch uh, me, Chris, and Zach on our Letterboxd or Reddit accounts, uh, the links of which will be in the description. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at They Live By Phil. Until next time, take care.